Thank you, Mike, very, very much. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to see all of you today. I'm looking forward to continuing on in our journey through the book of 1 John, though today we're going to be um, not just in 1 John, but uh, looking at a lot of different places around the scriptures. So um, we won't be, we won't even take time to turn to all of them. Some of them are quite familiar passages, I'm sure, so I'll be drawing your attention to them. Um, but being guided by the thoughts that are here in 1 John chapter 5, uh, once again, I'll be reading verses 6 through 12, and if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Speaking of Jesus as the Son of God, this is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these things agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Please uh, be seated. So we began looking at this passage uh, last week, noting the aspect here that is emphasized again and again and again, that matter of testimony. We noted that the word testimony throughout this passage, as it usually is throughout the New Testament, is translating a, a word that we're all quite familiar with, that in English sounds almost exactly like the root word in Greek, and that is the word martyr. The word martyr we look at now as someone who gives up their life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the sake of their beliefs in Jesus Christ. But the reason that that word took on that, that connotation for us is because of the history of those who testified concerning Christ and who he was and what it cost them. So when we look through this here and note that um, the testimony is here, it's not that John is necessarily um, uh, saying that uh, here are three that uh, uh, are martyred, the spirit, the, the water, and the blood. Uh, here's a, you know, this is, this is uh, uh, we receive the martyrdom of men. Don't take it that way. Martyrdom happens because of the testimony of those who faithfully proclaim Jesus Christ in the midst of a wicked and perverse world that hates Christ and wants to silence the voice of the one who is testifying. So when we look at this, this particular section and the emphasis upon testimony, 
we want to notice that over and over again, this testimony is something that is sure and certain. But there's a reason that it is sure and certain. And that's, we're getting, uh, we, 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 we set the stage for it last week, and we're coming to the heart of the matter uh, today, God willing. Now, an, a quick thing here about the book of 1 John as a general rule. If you talk to people that are relatively literate in the New Testament and, and think about themes of books and that sort of thing, if you ask them if, uh, if you know, there was a, a book that you would turn someone to who's struggling with uh, doubts about their faith and so on, and they're looking for assurance of their salvation, uh, many, many times people would turn and maybe you have yourself even with, uh, with others, you turn someone to say, hey, go read 1 John, because there's a lot there about how you can know that you're in Christ and to, you know, to be assured of your salvation. And certainly those things are there. But usually I think when we're looking at the book of 1 John in that way, we're usually looking at the passages that have to do with how we behave. Or what, we, or what we believe in general, what we love. And we tend to, if, if we're struggling with doubts, we're struggling with uh, wanting to have assurance of, of our salvation, we have a tendency to look inward and try to find um, where our thinking or our behavior ticks off the boxes that we see in First John. And while there is a certain... Uh, level of validity to doing that sort of thing. There are, we remember we talked about tests and so on. The focus in this book about your certainty and knowledge, which is another huge theme that is developed throughout this book and has been from the very beginning, is not you. It's not your performance. And I'm going to say this very carefully. It's not even your belief though your belief, you need to believe the right things. But we have a tendency to say, the world's idea is just have faith in something. Just be confident. Just believe in belief. Believe in, that's not what this is about. This is about certainly the object of your belief and the one who is the foundation for all of your certainty and all of your knowledge. And John has been building up through this, all these interwoven themes throughout this book. And now here in this section, he comes and in verse Nine, we have the, the very heart of it where we understand that our certainty, our confidence, and indeed the, the, the whole underlying uh, foundation of our testimony before the world is not, look at my testimony, how well I be, I'm behaving as a Christian. But my testimony is in the God who has redeemed us through the blood of his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no more complicated than that. And yet the profundity of that boggles the mind. That the one who is the son of God came and secured our salvation. Now I mentioned to you last time uh, that we were going to spend spend just a few minutes talking about that phrase, Son of God, and what that means. Of course, 
You read that in English, and our minds immediately go to, well, you know, as many cults do, um, well, he was created, he's a lesser being, he's something else besides full divinity or whatever. Um, but the Bible often uses what uh, we call the language of accommodation. And it's accommodation to our frailty and accommodation to our perception of reality and our temporal nature in our uh, inability to, to really grasp eternity. Uh, we can't. Uh, we're people of time and place and tangible uh, expression of life. And so the concept of sonship uh, and fatherhood and all those kinds of things, the Lord is accommodating his way of thinking uh, or his way of speaking, I should say, to the way that we think and the way that we process reality. But this has nothing to do with Jesus being created or being a lesser being. It is a term actually that has roots in the Old Testament, just at, at which we will see, um, as well as the new. Certainly um, the Pharisees, uh, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day knew exactly what this term meant. If Jesus had been saying that he was a, a, a lesser being, that he was created by God and come, um, even, even claiming to be the Messiah in those terms, um, they might not have taken the response that they did. But because he declared himself to be the Son of God, they wanted to pick up stones and kill him. Because in their minds he was blaspheming because they knew that that title was not describing a physical relationship it was describing a, it was it was a title that described position function and essence of being it's about relationship within the godhead jesus is god's son in the sense that he is god who is made manifest in human form which is suggested by john chapter 1 Verse 1 and verse 14. Um, he's also God's son uh, from a physical standpoint in that he was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, his humanity, as we see there in Luke one thirty-five. But those things are only suggestive. Um, the Jewish leaders knew exactly what Jesus meant. To be the son of God is to be of the same nature as God. And it describes a, a hierarchy, an economy within the Godhead of relationship and function. But it has nothing to do with worth or position or equality or inequality of power or ability or anything else. The Jews knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. And that's why they wanted to kill him. So when the testimony here is that Jesus is the Son of God, this is the testimony of God, verse 9, that he is born concerning his Son. And that testimony is that Jesus is the Son of God and that through him he's given us, through, through Jesus God has given us eternal life. And that life is, as it says there in verse uh, 11, the life is in his son. 
So here we have this witness. John has already talked about three witnesses. The witness of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's witness that's in our heart. That testifies to our spirit that we're His. As well as the testimony of the Word itself. That the Spirit enlightens our minds and helps us to understand what that testimony in the Word has to say. And then we looked at the witness of the water, speaking of Jesus' baptism, where he was commissioned to the office of the high priest. God has his witness there as he declares Jesus to be his beloved son. And then the witness of Jesus' crucifixion, as Jesus declared there, it is finished. He completed the office of the high priest there, standing in the stead of his own, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living, as Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 15. We have those wonderful three witnesses upon which we build our confidence, our knowledge that we have uh, eternal life. But uh, the Lord also uh, testifies to us, as we looked at last time, through three confidences. And the confidences uh, are, first of all, the, our hearts that are sealed by the Holy Spirit. God is not a liar. God testifies to us uh, within our own hearts, gives us the Spirit of God as a seal of the inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we may have confidence because of that um, sure and certain knowledge of our relationship that the Spirit gives to us because he's with us. And the confidence of a certain eternity, again, we looked at that there just a moment ago in verse 11, where God gave us eternal life and that life in his son. And we spent a little time there. And then not just looking ahead to the future, but also having the confidence of, of, of a present life that is satisfied and full. And we looked at a couple of passages from John 1 and Ephesians chapter 4 that emphasize the fullness of the Lord that is ours, that we have received grace upon grace because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a fullness that's yet to come, but we possess it now. And, and, and as, as some of that comes through the ministry of the Spirit, um, I should say, in a way, all of it does, but there's also not just the direct ministry of the Spirit, but he uses means, and so in Ephesians chapter 4, he speaks of those whom the Lord has given to equip the saints uh, unto, the, unto maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So through the ministry of the Spirit, through the ministry of the church and the Word, we may be full and satisfied. And because of that, when the world tempts us to doubt, when false teachers would draw us away after a false gospel, after a false Christ, which is what was happening in John's day, and certainly happens a lot in ours, that we're not drawn away by those things because we're full up with Jesus Christ. We need nothing else but Him. And all of this has been building to the heart of this particular section, which is in verse 9. Let me read verse 9 again. If we receive the testimony of men, and uh, we do receive the testimony of men, part of... Uh, our fellowship here as we testify to one another about what Christ has done for us, about where our hope lies. And so we can encourage one another in that way. That's absolutely um, 
appropriate and wonderful. But the testimony of men can only go so far. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So this morning I want to spend a few minutes talking about the direct testimony of God to Jesus Christ being the Son of God and having life in Him for eternity as our hope and confidence. Remember, we've been talking throughout this whole book as John lays it out. Reasons to write, as he says, I write to you because, I write to you because, over and over in this book, all of this is looking forward to verse 13, which has governed everything that we've talked about for the past several several um, uh, weeks, uh, looking uh, beginning at ver- really in chapter in the beginning of chapter 4 and moving on to the end. Verse 13 of chapter 5, I write to you these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. So God himself testifies. The testimony of God is greater. And I got to thinking about that. I said, well, where, where, simple question, where has God testified about Jesus as his son? So let's see, it's 20 after now. Uh, well, my watch is running fast, so that's depending on which watch I get, and we'll see how which clock I'm looking at. We'll see how long it takes to go through all of this. God's testimony is great; it's profound, and it is pervasive throughout all of Scripture. So, you ready to go? We're going to go kind of fast. We're only going to hit a sampling. So, hang in there. Get your running shoes on, and. Let's, let's have at it. I started thinking about the kinds of declarations that there are. Because really this is about God declaring who His Son is. He has made this testimony. A forthright testimony or declaration about His Son. Where does that take place? It starts with declaration of promise throughout the Old Testament. And again, this is just a sampling. I chose ten of them. Um, I could have chosen a hundred of them or more. All right. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Most of you, I think, are pretty familiar with that. That's the promise that, uh, that God gives to Adam and Eve when he says to, uh, as he's cursing the serpent, and he says to the serpent that there's going to be one who comes. And he's going to crush that serpent's head. The serpent would wound, but Christ would destroy his enemy. He, by promise, is the one who will crush the devil, will crush the serpent and sin. In Exodus chapter 12, if you look at verses 2 through 13, the whole description of the lamb that is to be sacrificed, the one who is the atoning lamb, upon whom the sins are placed and who would bear the, the guilt of the worshiper and that lamb would be slain, sets forth a pattern that is repeated again and again and again and again throughout the Old Testament and then brought to clarity in the new, in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, you have there the one of the prophecies, I believe it's the third one, the third oracle of Balaam of Beor, who uh, entered, oh boy, there's a rabbit trail, okay? But uh, here's Balaam, who is a false prophet. He's, 
But the Lord uses him anyway to, to, to bless Israel in spite of what the Moabites wanted to do to, to destroy them. And in that prophecy, in, in Numbers 24, Balaam prophesies that there would, there would arise one who is the star of Jacob, the scepter of Israel, who would destroy the en- enemies of God's people and put them down. And certainly there would be those that would, would uh, fight against Moab, and Moab would be undone. But this uh, goes beyond just a mere... Um, battle uh, from, between nations. Uh, the Messiah is in view there, the star of Jacob and the scepter of Israel, the one who is the power and authority of Israel, uh, God's son. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord promises the nation of Israel through, the, through Moses. Moses says there in verse 15 <clears throat> that there will come one who God will give one who is like me, and him you'll listen to. Which I always smile when I read that. Uh, you can just hear a whole lot of background in, Mo- in Moses' words there. But him you're going to listen to. He's the one uh, who will give you the truth, but he's one like Moses uh, that God will raise up. And then the promise in Psalm 110. This one we will turn to. Just take a a couple throughout here we'll look at. But in Psalm 110, a psalm of David, one of the psalms that Jesus used when he was talking to uh, the Pharisees who were trying to trip him up and were trying to get him to get him to say again that he's God's son, that he's actually God, the Messiah come in the flesh so that they could find fault against him. And he basically refers, he refers to this psalm. He says, haven't you heard? Uh, tell me, if David calls him Lord, um, why are you having a problem with this? And of course, their mouths were silenced. Uh, his logic was impeccable, and they had no answer. But it came from Psalm 110. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, and that's, um, that is my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. And there's the scepter again uh, brought in uh, centuries later. That same concept of him as the scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, That uh, thought is developed further in the book of Hebrews, if you remember. Uh, the Lord, and there we have the master, the ruler, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter, chief, shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In other words, he'll be refreshed and will keep going to do his perfect work. He's the Davidic Messiah to come. In Isaiah 53, another declaration of promise where we read there, verses 2 through 4, that he is the root, that he is the Messiah, is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's been stricken, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. 
This is the Messiah that the Jewish uh, nation at Jesus' time did not want to hear about. They wanted to see themselves as the oppressed, but the Messiah would be the victorious ruler who would not suffer any of those things. And yet the prophecies both in Isaiah and, and throughout the rest of the prophets that speak of the Messiah as the one who, yes, is victorious, but also suffers for the sake of his nation. And indeed, uh, even Caiaphas, uh, at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, would, would say by way of prophecy, and you get the idea it was kind of unwitting, but he says, yes, surely one must suffer for the nation. And, of course, he was speaking of Jesus, though he, I don't believe, was fully aware of the full implications of what it was he was saying. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 6, another promise that there would come a righteous branch that would spring up. And it says there that he shall reign as king. And his name, Stu will know what this name is, as he's been preaching through the names of God. I think you've already done this one. Yahweh Tzedakah, the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. Which, by the way, ties in uh, with the golden plate that was put across the high priest's turban. Holiness to the Lord. And um, we already talked about this concerning Jesus' baptism uh, last week where the Holy Spirit comes down and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is the Holy One of Israel. In, I, in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 20 through 32, the Messiah is described as one who pours out his spirit and brings salvation. And at the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up there in Jerusalem with the thousands of people that were there and say, today, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing as the spirit of God, as promised, had been poured out. And God's people were proclaiming in the tongues of the nations around who Jesus is and what he has done. Prophesied there in Joel, a clear declaration about the Messiah that would be fulfilled. In the book of Haggai, chapter 2, um, it depends on the, uh, the translation that you read. It could be treasure of the nations will come, uh, but uh, the older translation is the desire of the nations, and that's generally taken as a messianic prophecy. The desire of the nations would come. And there's that promise. In the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, uh, speaks of the Messiah to come, who is the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness, with healing in his wings. He is the great physician, and he declared himself to be so and showed himself by the works that he did. Uh, indeed, he has that power as well. So from the first book of the Old Testament to the last book of the Old Testament, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that, are, that all refer to the Messiah. And, the, and again, this is a sampling. I could have chosen dozens more. And all of them find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ.
But the Lord didn't just content himself with promise because it took place. Jesus came as promised. And when he came, there were different kinds of declarations now, not just, uh, not just prophecy, not just looking ahead, but pro- declarations of what I'll call announcement. Announcement. First announcement, there are more as well, but uh, these are the five that came to mind particularly at the time when Jesus first came. Announcement to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20, where Joseph is trying to figure out what to do. He's got this, uh, his young betrothed wife who is expecting a child and it wasn't from him. And he doesn't know what to do about this in that culture. Um, he had every right to, uh, to break off the betrothal and put her away. And uh, she would be in disgrace and all of that. So he's concerned. And the angel comes to him and says, Joseph, do not be afraid. This is of God. This is of the Holy Spirit. Take her to yourself and do so without Concern, because this is of God. In Luke chapter 1, there is the announcement that is made to Mary herself, where the angel again says to her, don't be afraid. Uh, Mary perhaps was afraid for, not perhaps, I'm pretty sure, was afraid for a different reason, wondering what in the world has happened here. Um, Because she knew what she'd done and hadn't done. And here she is expecting a child. And the angel says to her that this child is the son of the Most High. He's God's son. He will reign. You remember that promise that was given back in Jeremiah chapter 23 about the righteous branch? Where the promise there is that he shall reign? Well, he is going to reign and his kingdom will be without end. Uh, the angel tells Mary in this announcement. The Lord also declares his testimony uh, is carried on by, uh, by Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, in a little bit, a few verses later in Luke chapter 1, where Mary comes to visit her, Elizabeth also expecting a child, John, who would become John the baptizer. Uh, she is filled with the Spirit and prophesies. Uh, concerning the child that is in Mary's womb and says, what is the mother of my Lord doing here? (laughs) Basically, Um, this announcement, this recognition that the child that Mary bore was no ordinary child, was not just a man, but is the God-man, Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 2, another announcement very familiar to us. The announcement made to the shepherds um, where he is, this child is declared by the angels uh, to, to be a savior, Christ the Lord. Christ being the anointed one in Greek, that idea there, the, the um, Greek uh, uh, um, version, if you will, of the word of Messiah. The Lord or the ruler, the one who is the sovereign. That's the announcement that was made. Not done in a corner, not done, uh, you know, in some secret thing, but public announcement. 
Then there was the announcement, uh, a couple of announcements together uh, by uh, Simeon and Anna in the temple when Jesus is brought and presented for uh, uh, dedication as the firstborn in the temple. In Luke chapter 2, 25 and 38, Simeon declares that uh, he's praying to the Lord. He says, now I can depart in peace. Uh, he'd been waiting for years, uh, praying for the revelation of God's Messiah to come. And he says, now my eyes have seen your salvation when he looked upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And Anna uh, was praising God because she had seen the redemption of Jerusalem when she looked upon the Lord Jesus. These are declarations that God made through human instruments or through angelic beings announcing that his plan was continuing on and it was being revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there was a, another category of declaration that I thought of um, that the Lord gives, promise, announcement, but also declarations uh, of affirmation. Things that, that demonstrated that what God had been saying all along was true. Now we've already spoken a bit of the witness of Jesus' baptism. Uh, let me... Um, Let's get into some details there. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, uh, remember this is where the Spirit comes down upon uh, Jesus and the Spirit and, and, and a voice in the form of a dove and the voice comes um, and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John, the baptizer, in John chapter 1, had this to say. Uh, John bore witness. This is John 1, 32. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The, again, an event that did not take place in a corner. This was done while G John was baptizing at the Jordan. There were many witnesses to this, not just John. But it's affirmed here this, that what God had been saying about, about the one who would pour out his spirit had arrived. And then... Uh, John chapter 14, we, uh, I spent a little bit of uh, time thinking about this or talking about this um, a little bit ago. But um, take a look again at John chapter 14, verses 10, through, 10 and 11. So, <clears throat> this is the passage where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That was back up there in uh, verse 6. Um. But um, Philip is saying, Lord, show us the Father. And he's like, Philip, have I been you the, the, what I'm standing here in front of you. Why are you asking me to show you the Father? If you don't believe, he said, uh, in what I'm telling you, at least the words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. 
Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Throughout Jesus' ministry, the, the miraculous works that were done by Him, as appointed by the Father, again and again and again and again, publicly witnessed, not disputed that these things were happening. In fact, the Pharisees made it very clear, we know these things are happening, we don't like it, he's going to take away our authority, we've got to get rid of this guy before he does anything else. And God and Jesus continually said, if you're not going to believe what I'm saying, at least believe what you're seeing. But they would not do so. God gave those miracles through the Lord Jesus as a way to affirm his power and deity. Do you remember uh, one that comes to mind was the, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead? And Jesus prayed. Do you remember what he prayed? He said, Lord, I'm not praying to you because I have any doubt about what's going to happen here. I'm not praying for my own sake. I know the relationship. I know the power. I know what's going to happen here is the subtext behind those words. He says, I'm praying for the sake of those who are standing here so that they will know that I'm from you. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth. And people are, not surprisingly, astonished. And yet, still, it was after that that the Pharisees were all the more determined to put him to death because they saw that he was a threat to their authority. But the miracles throughout Jesus' ministry affirmed that all the things that God had promised, and in fact, many of those promises that we looked at and many more speak very much of the kinds of miracles that the, that the Son of God would do, that the Messiah would do, like feeding thousands, like raising the dead, like healing, like all of those things. Uh, are fulfilled in the historical ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another kind of declaration is uh, a little more direct one, uh, similar to what we had at the baptism of Jesus, at the, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when the disciples catch a glimpse of the glorified Christ and standing there in the company of Moses and Elijah, and Peter starts stammering about, oh, let's build some... Let's build some tabernacles here and, and uh, places of worship uh, and so on. And the Lord silences Peter's babbling and <laughs> says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. <laughs> Let's quit talking. Uh, listen to him. He's the one who has the words of life, um, which, is, which is really a remarkable thing uh, because remember Peter... Uh, when asked about, earlier, when asked about, uh, are you guys going to leave me too? And so many of the disciples left, and, and Peter said, Lord, to whom will we go? You alone have the words of life. And yet uh, here at the Transfiguration, Peter kind of forgot about that and stopped listening and started talking. Um, and needed to be listening to the words of life through the Lord Jesus. But, the, but God speaks to, uh, it, directly regarding his favor um, and his power and relationship to his beloved son. At the crucifixion, God makes some declarations, but in a different way. 
different way. Um, not so much, uh, um, you know, sentences that we can read, though Jesus is certainly saying many things. But God himself makes some declarations about what is going on at the, uh, uh, with his son and what the son is doing. There's the hours of pitch darkness when Jesus is experiencing separation from the Father. There's the great earthquake that God sends at that time. An earthquake that's historically attested by historians of the time. Um, uh, and tombs being opened and all that sort of thing. The rending of the temple curtain from top to bottom. These are declarations. Maybe without words, but perhaps all the more powerful because of what is done. As God visits the judgment upon his son that is due to us for our sin. That affirms all the things about the suffering Messiah and what would happen. Everything that took place there at the crucifixion fulfills every promise of the Old Testament. Finally, take a look over at um, Revelation chapter 5. And here's more declaration. These are declarations not of prophecy or even of announcement, but of affirmation about who God is. Affirmation in heaven takes place now and will take place as we see John in his vision, as, we sees, as he sees what's happening in heaven. As Jesus takes the scroll in verse uh, uh, verse. Eight, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The affirmation of who Jesus is, what he has done in in dying and redeeming his people to secure for them a place and an inheritance and a kingdom. These are declarations, all of them, from God himself. This is the testimony. If the testimony of man is to be believed, if the testimony of man is great, the testimony of God is greater concerning his son. And our hearts can be fixed upon this testimony. And indeed, must be. This is truly the foundation of our confidence before Him. Of the surety of knowing who God is and what He's done for us and what our relationship is to Him. The surety of knowing that we do possess eternal life with him. If we have our testimony anywhere else or our confidence in any other testimony, it is ill-placed and will come to nothing. Our testimony must be fixed in that of God himself. And truly, that is the foundation of our assurance and the remedy to our doubts is in the unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, plan and the execution of that plan 
by our eternal God. God Himself testifies to the full deity and full humanity of His Son. And again, why does He testify this way? Why does John tell us this? Look ahead there to verse 13. I write these things to you, he says, of 1 John 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now there's some practical ramifications to that knowledge. And John, as he wraps up his letter, will march through a few of those things. Fascinating passage. I might get through it next week. We'll see. Probably be a couple weeks. We're getting close to being done. But this confidence of eternal life is ours because of what God says and what God does. Yes, um, our deeds, our actions, our beliefs uh, play a role, but they are a response role to who God is and what he's done. Let's fix our, let, let's, okay, I'm going to say this really carefully. Let's not be so concerned about our testimony as we are about his when it comes to where we're resting, where our confidence lies. Because as we do so then, we will walk with surety we will walk with confidence in Him who alone has the words of life. Let's pray. Our gracious God, how thankful we are for Your testimony from the beginning of Your Word to the very end. Over and over and over again, Christ is lifted up. The God-man in whom alone is our salvation. Thank you, Lord, for your plan. Thank you for executing your plan. Thank you for declaring your plan and making it plain to us. Open our hearts, uh, Lord, with the eyes of faith to see it and to respond humbly before you and live in a way that is worthy of our great Savior, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.